Genesis 2, the Lord God said, if you remember these words, I'll put them on the screen. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs or his side and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned, formed into a woman the side which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Those words from Genesis 2, how much, how much theology or truth is contained in those few verses? Theology truth about the complementary design of men and women in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. God's grand design, that's what we've been looking at. We've called it grand because it is grand. It is beautiful, it is comprehensive. And over these many weeks, we have sought to and observed, hopefully, and flesh out the implications of this complementary design of man and woman, especially as it relates to the people of God or the church. It's what we've been focused on. How often in our series, in these many weeks, have we turned back or referred back to this foundational text of God's design of the man and of the woman? But nowhere perhaps, is the complementarity of man and woman seen and lived out more than in the relationship of marriage, husband and wife. So notice in Genesis 2 where Moses, the author of Genesis, where he goes next in the next verse. I'll put it on the screen. It's verse 24 of Genesis 2. He says, He adds an editorial comment that is universal. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage, and this is the foundational text in the Bible for marriage, marriage is based on in fact, it flows directly out of the complementary design of man and woman. Moses sees, as he recounts the creation of the woman for the man and from the man, he sees in this unique creation of the woman for the man the institution of marriage. That's why he inserts this comment and he universalizes it for all marriage. It's for this reason, this design of the man and woman, that the man shall leave his father and mother, what we would think might be the the most special of all relationships, parent and child, even that we're celebrating. No, but there's something more fundamental or unique. It's husband and wife. He'll leave his father and mother and he'll cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the essence. The essence of marriage is based on the complementarity of man and woman. They came from one flesh. The woman is created out of the man and they reunite in one flesh union 
that is the most profound and intimate of all human relationships. God institutes marriage. So as we begin now to bring this series to a conclusion, I emphasize the word begin to bring this series. It's a long landing, probably. But as we do, we turn our focus to marriage. The most visible and potentially beautiful display of complementarity of men and women. And we begin doing that by looking together this morning at First Peter in the New Testament and chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, as always, you can open with me as we will look together at this passage. First Peter, it's in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, and chapter 3, Submission and Honor in Marriage. I want to begin here. You might think, why don't you go to Ephesians chapter 5? If you know your Bible a little bit, you know Ephesians 5 is uh, the quintessential passage on marriage, and we will. I want to save that for the grand finale <laughs> of our series, because Ephesians 5, we'll talk about similar things, but Ephesians 5 elevates this complementarity, this complementary design in marriage to the most profound level ever. And I want to see that as we end this series. So we're going to save that, but I thought it would be healthy for us to step outside of the Apostle Paul for a moment. The past four or five Sundays we've been in, in this series, we've been in the Apostle Paul. And I want us to see an author outside of Paul, and yet you'll see a very similar, very consistent teaching as Paul. In fact, as the whole Bible. We would expect that. Yet in this passage, Peter, his grounding and his emphasis is slightly different than Paul's. And it's good for us to see. In fact, I think it's very helpful to see this text and to see the consistency of the scripture on this issue. Let me read it. First Peter chapter three. I'll put this up on the screen. Look there or just follow in your Bible, starting in verse one. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be external only, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As always, let's just think for a moment about context. We haven't been in the book of Peter, so let me give a couple 
notes of context of where this passage fits in. This is the Apostle Peter. First note, Peter writes to the Christians, to Christians who are suffering for their faith. They're suffering mostly for their faith, and he comforts them with this hope, this hope of the gospel, a living hope, he calls it in chapter 1, and he challenges them to holy living as a gospel witness. That's what this book is about. That's what Peter's doing. He's writing, he calls them Christians who are in exile. They're dispersed abroad, and they're suffering at some level for their faith, and he does provide them with gospel comfort, the hope of the gospel. You'll see that throughout his book. But in light of that gospel, he challenges them to holy living as a winsome gospel witness. And that holy living is rooted in their new birth. They've been born again. We've been born again to this living hope. And it's rooted in our redemption by precious blood as of a lamb. And it calls for this kind of behavior. So that's, that's the big context of Peter. More specifically now, just second note of context. As exiles, he urges them to exhibit a lifestyle distinct from, yet attractive to, the hostile culture in which they live. He calls them a couple times, Exiles. So look at chapter 2. If you have a Bible open, look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is the lead command of this section. Beloved, I urge you as aliens. That's not the green kind. <laughs> aliens, he means exiles. We might say refugee. We have this refugee crisis right down a few hours from us on our border, don't we? That we all see on the news every day. And as you see those people coming from uh, these various countries, I hope your heart breaks as they uproot everything seeking for some kind of life here. can't imagine what they go through, but they're, they're entering a foreign country where they know nothing. And that, that's the analogy the Bible uses for us as Christians in this culture in which we live. We're like refugees. We're like aliens. We're like exiles. It's, a, in some sense, a foreign culture to us. And so that's what he calls them. And he says, I urge you to abstain from, verse 11, from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's just his code word for non-believing, unbelieving culture. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of your visitation. So this is a major theme of Peter. Live this life, exhibit a lifestyle distinct from yet attractive to the culture in which you live, that they might glorify God, that it might be winsome, gospel compelling. And for Peter, that includes proper submission. Submission. So he goes on, starting verse 13 of chapter 2, to give these relationships in which submission is the excellent behavior that he is commending. So in chapter 2 verse 13 he says submit yourselves for the lord's sake to every human institution whether the kings as one in authority or the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right submit yourself to government governing authorities all of us christians 
relevant that text is today. Submission to government. He expects that's part of the excellent behavior. Remember, this is not a pro-Christian government. This is a Nero government. (laughs) And he says, submit to the degree you can. Obviously, there's limitations. We know on submission when it comes to obedience to God, but have this posture of submission. So there's first category. Then verse 18, here's another category. Servants, these are household servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, this favor with God. So servants to masters, we might say employees to employers, not quite as strong as this, but in that general sense, there's submission there, even when it's not easy, even when they're harsh, he calls them to submit. That would be part of that excellent behavior. And then chapter three, verse one is our text in the same way. Likewise, you wives specifically Be submissive to your own husbands. Now the context of marriage. Marriage. In a similar way, now all those submissions, whether it's to government or to employers or masters, they're going to have a different nature of flavor to them, but there's a similar category of being submissive. That's what he says. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. That's part of this excellent behavior. Now, as I read that, the uniqueness of Peter's exhortation, that is, how does it fit? Why does he go there? How does it fit into his larger theme? It fits because he's including wives whose husbands are not Christians. When he says there, if you look at verse one, even if any of them, husbands, are disobedient to the word, that's Peter's code for they're not believing the gospel. It may include other forms of disobedience, but primarily they're disobedient to the word, the word of God that saves the, the word of the gospel. So he's including that. So that's part of his larger theme here, that there's not only opposition potentially from culture, but maybe even from your own husband, that... He's speaking into a situation that is obviously less than ideal. And it's the same principle he's been saying. Your excellent behavior, including submission, is a gospel witness that may potentially win them to faith. Do you see that? Verse 1, that they might be one. He's thinking of conversion. He's thinking of coming to faith in the gospel without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So the same principle that applies in the broader culture of that winsome behavior that includes submission is true in marriage and in this unique application where the husband here is not a Christian. It is your behavior, your winsome, submissive behavior that may win them to faith. So that's how it fits with his larger theme of this book and I think why he goes here. Now, it becomes obvious as you read his instructions to wives that it applies to all wives in the church, not just to those with an unbelieving husband because he's going to go on and give the example of Abraham and Sarah and he's going to speak to Christian husbands there. So the application is to all wives, but there's a unique application here to those whose husbands are not Christian. It becomes really important. We'll see it in a moment. 
Then he just, he, I think he rounds off his instructions in verse 7 with a word to husbands. You husbands, likewise. And he says likewise there. It doesn't have anything to do with submission. It's just, here's your, he needs to speak a word to husbands so that this isn't taken wrongly. How to treat their wives. Now, we're going to save that for next Sunday. I want to think on that in some more depth. Husbands treating your wives in an understanding way. There's much to say there. And so we'll leave that off this morning. I want to address wives mainly, but I want all of us to hear. If you're not married or younger, let's listen. The beauty of submission. That's my title. The beauty of submission. Now, I'm aware, I'm aware, very aware of the bristling effect that the word submission has in our culture today. Especially when we're talking about women and wives and context of marriage. It's, I know, it's seen as demeaning. It's seen as oppressive. It's seen as misogynistic. I'm also aware of bad experiences women have had in Christian marriages seeking to apply this, seeking to follow God's command. I'll say more about that next Sunday. So the cards, ladies, are, are kind of stacked against you in our culture, maybe from experience and certainly from our own sinful propensities, our own fallenness, as we learned in Genesis 3, this desire potentially to control. So I, I just want at the outset here to encourage us, to encourage you to believe God's word over culture, over your experience, and over potentially your instinct. Believe that God formed marriage that we read in Genesis 2. He formed marriage for our good, for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. It's a gift. And his instructions about marriage are good. In premarital counseling, I like to tell folks, he wrote the manual. He created marriage and he wrote the manual. Now, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about marriage, but what it does say is so important, so essential. So his instructions are good. So I'm going to invite you to believe that. Ask God to give you faith to believe that. I think it's interesting if you look at verse 6 of chapter 3, how Peter ends his instructions to wives. He says, speaking of Sarah, you become her children if you do what is right, do what is good, and not be frightened by any fear. Isn't that an interesting way to end that? Not be frightened. Why would he say that? Not be frightened by any fear. Well, to place yourself in submission in the most intimate of all human relationships could be fearful. Right? I'm going to lose my identity. I'm going to lose my freedom. I don't know about the future especially if my husband's not a believer, like in this context. There are potential lots of reasons to fear even this command. 
And so he ends like that. If you're not frightened by any fear, your hope is in God. So that's I'm just urging you to believe his word. So let, let me start now. I want to start just first just giving a definition of submit. Right. That the Bible uses consistently. We just saw it three times in this one context. Submit. Hupotasso. This word to be subject to. We could try to be submissive. Here it is to place oneself deliberately voluntarily and consciously under someone's authority. It's a very simple definition. When he commands actively to submit or to be in subjection, that is to place yourself voluntarily, consciously, deliberately under someone's authority. So the idea of submit, it certainly includes courtesy. It includes respect, but it's more than that. There is a hierarchy of relationships when it comes to authority. So there's one in authority and there's one under authority. That's how the word is always, always used in the Bible, in the New Testament. There's one in authority and one under authority. So obviously at some levels it includes obedience. Now again, obedience in marriage, the Bible seldom uses that language. It does here in one instance, but that kind is is more the idea of following a lead. That'll, That'll look different than obedience to a master or obedience even to government. But it's that idea of one in authority and one under authority. And in the New Testament, when the Bible uses this word, hupotasso, this word to submit or be subject to, it's it's always in these relationship categories in the New Testament. We just read several of them. So we said government. All of us to government. Submit. Government doesn't submit to us. We submit to government. Employer, master to employee or servant. Employees submit in some sense or servants to masters. Children to parents. Right? They submit. They obey. Never parents submitting to children. And then this particular case, wives To husbands. It's never the reverse. It wouldn't make any sense of the word submit. It's one's in authority and one's under authority. So that's just what the word means that's used consistently and even three times in our text. So it implies, second note of definition, it implies a husband's headship or authority over his wife. It implies that. I said we're going to develop that more. What's that look like? What's that mean? very different than employer to employee. It's very different than government to citizen. What does it mean? We'll look at that. But, but I want you to see here, this is the consistent application or teaching of the New Testament that just connects us back to Genesis chapter 2, the text I started with. We saw in Genesis 2 this unique creation of the man. He was created first. He's given certain commands. And God says, not good for him to be alone. And then the woman is created to be his suitable helper it's the language that's used as helper that corresponds to him that's the idea of complementarity she's not exactly like him she's equal in worth but she corresponds to be his suitable helper and she's created from him and she's created for him and that design is what leads to marriage and so as the new testament looks at that genesis 2 how it applies it is in these terms of headship and submission 
Authority and submission. So submission here corresponds to the design of the woman as this helper suitable to him. In relation to the husband's leadership or headship. So that's the design based on Genesis 2 that ends in marriage. And that's the consistent application. Now, Peter's reasonings are not quite the same as Paul. Paul will always go directly back to Genesis chapter 2. We've already seen it. We'll see it again. But let me just note here some evidences of God's design in this passage. Remember, part of our series. This is not just a series on marriage. We're going to talk about marriage. But we're looking at the complementarity of men and women. I'm trying to argue for that, that the Bible teaches it everywhere consistently. So so where do we see evidences of God's design here in, in this text? Let me give you these two. A wife's godly submission is attractive even to an unbelieving husband. Did you catch that? That's the con. That's where he's starting here in verse one. Be submissive, even if they're disobedient, even if they're unbelieving, that they might be won by your behavior that includes right godly submission. So it's attractive to them. So this isn't merely a Christian thing. You see that? There's a universal rightness and recognition of role distinctions in marriage. That even the unbelieving husband would see and appreciate. Now, when Peter does that, don't don't mistake here. He's not appealing merely to first century culture. Like, well, that's what they do in that culture, so just do that and kind of appeal to his kind of selfishness there. He'll like that and maybe that'll win a hearing for the gospel. It's not what he's doing. Peter would not do that. He's appealing to pure behavior. Do you see it in verse 2? To your pure and respectful behavior. That is what? It's precious in the sight of God. Not just commendable in the culture. If there's any cultural reflection of that, it goes back to the design of God. Though there will be distortions in the culture. Again, he's not asking her to engage in some utilitarian evangelistic practice to just win him to Jesus. As I said, just appealing to his selfish interest for power. He would not do that. It's attractive because it's inherently beautiful as God's design. So he can say it even in the context of a non-Christian. And his reasoning must be something like as as he observes this godly behavior, this that is attractive and right, it it should lead to questions perhaps about the gospel or your motivation for doing it. In other words, it should lead, if you look down at chapter 3, verse 15, it should lead to something like this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That even in your marriage, that would happen. So that's first. Then notice also, Peter appeals to the consistent pattern of godly women in the Old Testament. So it's second evidence of God's design. Peter appeals to the consistent pattern of godly women in the Old Testament. Do you see it? Verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy Women also 
who hoped in God adorned, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So again, Peter's not appealing here to first century culture. He's appealing to the Bible. He's appealing to the consistent pattern of God's people, even in the patriarchy. As he'll give the example of Sarah. Holy women in former times. These are women who hoped in God. That's how he describes their faith. They didn't just hope in their husbands. They hoped in God. They were believers. They were holy women. And he's appealing to that as a good example. To be like that. And that's, again, you just see this consistent pattern through the whole New Testament and Old Testament. Through the whole Bible. As we saw in our study, when we looked at Jesus and the apostles, Jesus didn't come to liberate women from patriarchy. Right? He doesn't just upset that. Oh, there will be abuses even in patriarchy. We know that. But that same principle of the husband and wife in that relationship is God's design that Jesus commends, the New Testament commends. It's the consistent pattern, and that pattern we saw is based on God's design of Genesis 2. That's why you see the consistent pattern all the way through. And then he gives the example, verse 6, of Sarah. Sarah, the mother, you might say, of all God's people, right? Abraham and Sarah, the promise was given to her. Her, he says, she obeyed Abraham. She had a right obedience, following as part of submission. And she was respectful. That's the idea of calling him Lord. She was respectful to Abraham. Now, she wasn't perfect. Read the story. There were times when she took the reins and commanded Abraham. And go read how that turned out. Never good. So we see reversals there, but her consistent pattern, that's what he's going at. He's not just thinking of one time. She left, she followed Abraham based on the promise of God. She left Ur of the Chaldees and came to this land that they didn't know. She believed in this promise. It took a while, but she submitted herself to this. She followed her husband, trusting God in uncertain, unpleasant, even dangerous situations. So she is the mother of living or the of faith here. Just as Abraham is the father of the faithful. So that's how Peter sees her. And he says, women, you will become her children if you do what is right. Don't, don't follow her sinful example, obviously. But you will become her children if, if you clothe yourself with this kind of godly submission. To become her children is imitating her faithfulness. And as you do that, you share in her special dignity and honor, receiving God's special approval. You want to be a child. You want to be like Sarah. So again, it's consistent all through the Bible. Now, let me get to it here, just in the balance of our time. Let's just think a little bit about submission. I want to think what it is not, and then just briefly what it is. What it is not. First, we have these commands consistently about submission, but we're never given much detail. We're never given the nuts and bolts. Okay, here's six ways you work this out. 
But I would suggest that this, the reason this text here is insightful is because it gives this unique application of submission even in the context of an unbelieving husband. I think that's instructive. It helps us maybe understand a little bit about what submission is and what it isn't. That is, Peter expected this kind of godly submission to still exist in this context. It wasn't firstly dependent on the faithfulness of the husband. So that's pretty remarkable. Pretty. So let me just, I'm going to list just a bunch of bullets of what submission is not. Just based on this, this text, what we might learn from that. So first, submission is not putting your husband in the place of Christ. Not putting your husband in the place of Christ. Allegiance to Christ takes priority over allegiance to husband. Always. Hands down. Right, that's true in all those submission contexts. Whether it's government, our allegiance to God, Christ takes precedence over government. Over masters or employers. And even in marriage. So back in chapter 2, verse 13, when he started these instructions on submission, he said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. That little phrase really could govern all submission. For the Lord's sake. You're doing it unto the Lord. Your first highest level of submission is to Christ, not to husband. The husband never stands in the place of Christ that way. Never usurps the place of Christ. Obedience to Christ is first. So there may be times when submitting to Christ may require not following your husband. That's pretty obvious in this context. In the most fundamental issue of life, faith in Christ, she does not follow her husband, right? Certainly that, but also other things. If the husband is trying to lead into sin or morally compromising behavior, you submit to Christ, not to husband. In doing that, you're doing it for the Lord's sake. You do it with respect and gentleness, but yet your allegiance to Christ. So that's first. Next, giving up. Submission is not giving up independent thought and personhood. That might be part of that fear. I'm just a doormat. No. Again, think of this woman in this context. She has cho- She's heard the gospel. She's chosen to follow Christ apart from her husband. As I said, the most important decision, I think, of life She is going contrary. That's independent thought and thinking for herself and decision. Peter here doesn't address the husbands. First, he addresses wives, doesn't he? They are to think about how they are to live. Their thought. This wife and all wives, her ultimate spiritual strength and character is not ultimately dependent on her husband. Oh, husbands, we'll talk about next week. We should be there to strengthen and encourage our wives spiritually, but it's not ultimately dependent. Her husband's not a Christian, and she hopes in God, right? So it's not giving up your brain at the altar there or independent thought or personhood. It's not, submission is not agreeing with your husband on everything. Many of you say, (laughs) it's not agreeing with your husband on everything, right? Again, she doesn't agree on his view of what is supremely important here. 
If that's true of that, certainly lesser things. So submission doesn't equal always 100% agreement. It won't. But there is a respectful honoring of leadership in the way you disagree. And still trusting. If it's not into sin, still submitting and trusting. Submission is not avoiding efforts to influence your husband. For good. Let me add that quickly. For good. This is not manipulating your husband for what you want. But it doesn't mean avoiding efforts to influence your husband. Again, that's the whole context of Peter writing. The whole purpose is for her to exert a godly influence on what is most important. That he might be one without a word. Likely he knows the gospel. He's heard the gospel. He's rejected the gospel. So it's your behavior. So the emphasis here is on behavior, not words. Not manipulation, obviously. That is, let your behavior do the talking. Your godly submission. Even your beauty, wives, is a means of persuasion. <laughs> but not external beauty. Do you see it? Verse 3, as he goes right there. Not, let not your adornment, your clothing, so to speak, your adornment be external only. Braiding hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Again, he's not against those things. Obviously, you need to put on clothes. <laughs> So he's not making an absolute prohibition on those things. It's, it's a point of where your focus is, where your emphasis is. So that's not what is ultimately attractive or persuasive. But, verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So not external, but the hidden person of the heart. The external is fading. We know that. It's fading and quickly, no matter all of our efforts to beef it up, right? It's gonna fade. Inward is unfading. Isn't that amazing? In fact, it gets more beautiful with age. So, ladies, ask yourself where your investment is. When you look at your life and your energies and maybe how much time is spent on the thing that's fading. Again, it's not wrong to wear, do your hair and wear jewelry or makeup or any of those things. There's a rightness to that. And yet, where's the emphasis? How much emphasis is cultivating the hidden person of the heart? Do we believe God's word that this is the unfading quality? That that, that is precious in God's sight. That will be influential. Submission is not coerced by or living in fear. I mentioned that already. Don't fear anything, he says. So it's not coerced by or living in fear. That's not biblical, godly submission in a marriage. If you're submitting out of fear of reprisal or even fear of violence, please reach out. That's not biblical submission in a marriage. Do it without fear, he says. It shouldn't be compelled by fear. 
you're free. There's a freedom there in that submission. It's voluntary. I'll say it again. The command is never to husbands to put your wives in subjection. Never. It is to the wives. Freely. Never to husbands. He'll have commands for a husband, and it's not that. Ever that. So husband, we'll get to that next week, but just take care there. If you find yourself constantly saying you need to submit, there's something terribly wrong in that relationship. We'll say more next week. Finally, submission is not based on inferiority or spiritual inequality. It's not the basis of submission. We've seen all through this study on our complementarity that men and women created equal in value and personhood and dignity in the image of God. Our standing in Christ is equal. We thought on it in Galatians 3. So submission is not based on inferiority or superiority. We have equal standing. So he's going to say that to husbands next week. We'll see in verse 7 when he says, Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That equality, grant her honor. What does that mean? We'll have to think on what that means. So those are whatever, how many, six or so things submission is not. So what is submission? What submission is? Now, again, I'm I'm just going to say not much because I refer you back to Titus chapter 2, our study last week. It is the role of older women to younger women to urge them to be in subjection to their husbands. You, you can flesh it out a hundred times better than anything I'm going to say here this morning, right? And that's, that's that valuable role that we thought on of women to women ministry in this specific area. So I'll just give you a definition and one thing. What is it? It's an inner disposition that honors and affirms the husband's leadership and helps to carry it out. An inner disposition that honors, affirms the husband's leadership or headship and helps to carry it out according to her unique gifts and abilities. Again, it's a disposition, an inner disposition to to follow the husband's leadership, to to yield to his leadership. So it's, it's before it's any specific behavior, it's first this attitude, isn't it? This inner quality. And that's where we need to start. As wives and women is just this willing recognition that this is God's good word. And a willing recognition and respect of a husband's leadership. A respect of it. Now again, what's so instructive about this text is that this leadership of the husband that we'll talk about a little bit next week includes more than just spiritual leadership doesn't it? It has to because he's expecting submission to husband leadership when there's a non-Christian. He's not alive to the gospel, so he's not leading spiritually. So that leadership authority has to include other things and how those play out. Authority for decisions, authority for direction of the family, authority for provision in the family, the basic direction and Those things within the family fall under the the husband's headship or leadership or authority. And as the 
wife submits to that leadership, she, she's helping to carry it out. Again, we're back to that suitable helper idea we said was so basic in God's design of men and women, of headship and helpership. So that she's, she's not, the wife is not in competition. She's not living this separate life. But using, ladies, using your gifts, your uniquenesses, your resources, your creativity and supporting your husband's lead. And God says, I believe that that's beautiful and there's great freedom in it. And it's part of your very design. So it's not oppressive. It shouldn't be oppressive or crushing or limiting, but freeing and joyful. It includes, I'll just add this one note, it includes a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> Do you see that? I mentioned already in verse 4, this adornment is to be the hidden person of the heart. And he describes it, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, now, don't misunderstand. That has nothing to do with your personality type. Whether you're the outgoing, loud <laughs> type or the really quiet, introverted, quiet. It's not at all what he's talking about. It's not what he means by quiet. He's not talking about your external word. He's talking about an internal, inward spirit or quality of gentleness, gentleness, that word, only used four times, this noun used four times, twice of Jesus. To, to really get at the heart of Jesus, who he is. Jesus used it of himself. I am gentle and humble in heart. That's gentleness, ladies. It's being like Christ there. And quiet, again, it's not referring to the volume of your life or your speech, but quietness means undisturbed, tranquility, not fretting, not anxious, not fearful. A gentle and quiet spirit, a humility, not harshness, not abrasive, not self-assertive, not anxious. That's a gentle and quiet spirit that is part of this submission. Maybe it sometimes helps to think what it's not or what it looks like when it goes bad. Claire Smith, in her book, God's Design for Women, as a mom and as a wife, says to wives, we are sinners so wives, we will always want to, at some level, control or resist our husband's leadership, whether by nagging or yelling or manipulating or undercutting, by using the kids in an emotional tug of war, by gossiping about his failings to their mothers or friends, by overspending their money, or by treating him like a child with patronizing condescension. How many husbands feel like they are treated like teenage sons rather than the head of the household? Sin will take whatever form it can to set a wife against her husband's leadership. That is why wifely submission requires intelligence and wisdom, decisions and diligence, spiritual discernment and plenty of repentance. It is a life's work. But as Peter tells us, forget the face creams and hair dyes, forget the dress sales. If a wife wants her husband to think she is beautiful, this is where real beauty is found, and better still, it is, God willing, beauty that improves with time. End quote. It's a helpful word. So, that's all I'll say. But I want to thank 
you ladies, women, and wives for your example in this congregation, for living this out daily, for being committed to it. And it will look different in your marriage than it will in my marriage. And your different gifts and personalities. But thank you for your commitment to it. In spite of our culture messages, living this out, especially on this Mother's Day. Thank you for your example. And what a weight of responsibility is placed upon husbands. Next week, Lord willing, let's pray. Father, we need faith now to believe your word that it is good. And I, I just pray for especially any wives here who are just struggling that these words are hard to hear. Lord, would you grant them grace now to believe your word is good and, and what it means to live this out and even to seek counsel from others. Those that have had difficult experiences, Lord, would you bring healing and hope to their hearts this morning and trust in you to hope in God and not be frightened by any fear. Give us that gospel hope as we go from here. We ask in Jesus' name.